uh, we'd begin tonight by chanting the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is a chant sheet that you have. And if you, by chance, don't have one with you, maybe you can look over your neighbor's shoulder. So those of you who've uh, not chanted this before, the triangle down means a drop in tone. Triangle means up, means uh, a tone up. And the longer underline means stretching, kind of a stretching out of the word. So maybe to begin, we'll just do a call and response on the first three lines just to get a hang of it. And then we'll start from the beginning after we make sure everyone understands how this chant works. So we'll begin with, um, if the line begins, this is what should be done. So call and response. This is what should be done. By one who is skilled in goodness, and who knows the path of peace. Great. <laughs> so now I will chant the language in brackets, and then we'll start all together at the beginning with this is what should be done. Now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. This is what should be done by one.
I love that chant, knowing that it's been carried forward for almost 2,600 years since the time of the Buddha. And so many practitioners over lifetimes have chanted this, this chant. It really provides a sense of inspiration in connecting uh, to the Buddha, to our practice. I want to start with a story tonight. Uh, it's from my time at the airport. I worked at the airport for 35 years. Most of my practice years uh, were while working full-time. So I was really bringing the practice into daily life, bringing the right intention, right view, the intention for kindness, for renunciation, for non-harming into daily life, making it a real rich Dharma practice. The story will tell us about meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the airport. Uh, It was uh, about 10 years ago. And a police officer I knew, he was on the Dignitary Protection Unit, knew that I had a practice. And he called me and told me that the His Holiness the Dalai Lama would be flying in from India via Japan. So a very long flight. So I came in on a Saturday morning. Uh, so that I could see His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And as it turned out, uh, he doesn't go through customs. He's treated as a head of state. So he comes down the jetway stairs under the ramp. And I stood at the nose of the aircraft on the aircraft ramp, and I expected there'd be a lot of other people. But there were only police officers, U.S. Secret Service, and his own protection unit because he is still head of state, and me. (laughs) Uh, So I was at the bottom of the stairs alone to greet him. And uh, as I saw him come down the stairs, this beautiful, radiant radiant presence. I could see the kindness, the compassion, the great peace just in his presence. felt very moving in itself. He got to the bottom of the stairs, and uh, I bowed to him. He took my hand, we shook hands. And then the police officer had a camera, I didn't expect that. So we stopped for a photo. (laughs) And I told His Holiness the Dalai Lama that I was a practitioner. That was all. Then he walked a ways to his motorcade, five cars, about 75, 80 feet that he walked to get to his car. And then he turned around and looked toward me. I I thought, he can't be looking at me. I was tempted to turn around and look to see if there's someone behind me. (laughs) Maybe a deva. (laughs) uh, What does one do when His Holiness the Dalai Lama is looking toward you? So I bowed again, (coughs) and then he signaled me to come over. So I walked over to him, And he took my hand again, and he simply said, tell me, I want to know, how long have you been practicing? That was all. But it was incredibly inspiring and moving for my own practice that he would be so present after probably 15 or 16 hours of traveling to tune in to the importance of my meeting him from that heart of kindness, compassion, recognizing that I was practicing to realize the end of suffering, the deepest freedom.
And the police officer, too, took a whole sequence of photos, about 15 photos of everything happening. And this photo of my standing is as the motorcade left. Deep equanimity. I don't remember ever seeing a photo of myself with such deep, deep equanimity on my face. So it kind of fueled my practice after that. Stoked the practice. Um, I uh, still feel that in my heart when I, when I tell that story. So tonight I want to t- talk about s- trusting the heart, having confidence in the heart, confidence in this unfolding process as we cultivate loving kindness, this boundless, unconditional quality of the heart, opening to love. So it, this trusting of the heart This um, confidence in the heart also supports the arising of compassion. The temple spoke about this afternoon, the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, whether it be our own suffering or the suffering of others. To be able to acknowledge, I care about you, or for ourselves might say, I'm suffering, may I be free of suffering. And this confidence, trust in the heart provides a deep level of acceptance so that we can accept what's present with a grace, with this heart quality of equanimity that can accept things just as they are. It provides a real sense of stability for practice. So this trusting of the heart, this this faith in the practice of loving kindness really serves to allow the entanglements to begin to drop away. Ultimately, with a practice to go in the direction of releasing the heart entirely from confusion. This is a direction of our practice and supports the opening to the, to the most beautiful qualities of the heart, all of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, and supports our practice to ride through all the waves, all of the ups and downs in practice to allow us to keep going, to keep sticking with it, no matter what is coming up in practice. I'll tell another uh, story as an introduction. Um, Also been a hospice volunteer for many years. Um, Very different from my work. I was in a senior management position at the airport. I both recognized the need to do something at a heart level, kind of a one-to-one level, uh, to open my heart to bring more peace into my life. But it was also a Dharma gate in the AIDS crisis of the 80s and 90s when I lost many friends to AIDS. As I would sit with them in the dying process, nothing to do but entirely be present. Can't do anything. Nothing to do, nothing to make happen. In that letting go, the defilements that cloud the heart and mind drop away. I didn't recognize that was what was happening at the time, but I recognized there was something mysterious, something powerful that was being open to in that presence of the complete letting go, in that complete presence. So it drew me to uh, the practice of being a hospice volunteer, the same program the temple was in. I did that for many years, and um, It became a Dharma gate for me. It's not a Dharma gate for everyone, but it was a Dharma gate for me in opening to the truth and opening up the heart. 
to say for a long time, every Sunday morning when I'd come into my five-hour shift, a feeling that would come up almost every time, maybe for the first six or eight months, was, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough to do this work. Maybe you've had those thoughts. I'm not good enough, or I'm not missing, or something's missing. I started to have the wisdom to be with it, to just recognize this is a sankara, this is a conditioned pattern. To be able to say, I'm suffering, this is suffering. And to see it again and again, to feel into it occasionally. Most of all, just to see it, to let it go, and see it lose its power through the light of awareness with a heart of kindness, of loving kindness. Kind of the antidote to the fear associated with that not good enough that, that deeply underlies that sense of not good enough. The antidote is metta. So I'd begin every single shift by saying metta for myself. And recognizing the Buddha's instructions that no one is more deserving of our love and affection than we are ourselves. And it really provided the basis for entering the house for being with the residents and family, to be able to be with them fully. Also allowed to allowed me to slide away from all of the activities of my life, the plans for the rest of the day, by opening to this heart of loving kindness, to be connected into the present moment. And then with that, I could begin to trust the heart. It became this mysterious thing in this hospice practice, at first very kind of what was that? I'd be with a resident in hospice care and suddenly my hand would reach out, begin stroking the person's hand. Or words would come out of my mouth. There was no one doing it. It was just, there was no thinking before the action. It was just such a natural response of the heart. So it led me to more deeply trust the heart, to more deeply trust the heart in, in practice overall. So with that entree of metta for myself, I could enter the rooms, be open and present at some level, not always perfectly so, and some level of kindness and acceptance. It's a real great gift of practice that with this practice of present awareness, of basic kindness, that we can be with friends and family other people we may know, not even know well. We can be with the suffering and not need to do anything about it. We can see that the gift is just to be present with that heart of kindness and acceptance. In being present in that way, the defilements aren't there. So we're actually serving our loved ones that we're with, with that presence. We're serving them in a way that may allow them to actually begin to wake up as well. Providing that space of awareness for them. Sometimes in the hospice care, I saw deep awakenings as people were dying. It was quite amazing. So the great gift of our practice for the world, we really bring the light of love into the world from this practice of loving kindness as an antidote to fear and hatred. I love these words of the Buddha. I keep sticking, returning to these words of the Buddha, especially in the last, during this, this calendar year, 2017. 
that hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. I love to think that we're healing the world with our practice and to acknowledge that hatred is a sickness, it's an illness, and the cure is love, nothing more than love, the simplicity of this practice of loving kindness. So the story I'd like to share now is of King Ashoka. Um, He was a king 250 years after the time of the Buddha in northern India, a powerful king, but he was very violent. He was always trying to get more territory, uh, not kind to his own people. I uh, checked online today and saw that um, his violence resulted in 100,000 deaths. And it was reported too that there were 150,000 deportations. Interesting, even 2,300 years ago, there was a problem of deportations. So King Ashoka at the end of a battle was on a battlefield after the battle was over, all the carnage. And something really disturbed him about it, a moment where his heart was shaken. And he saw at that time too, a monk walking across the battlefield, serene, peaceful, perhaps having realized a peace that's unconditional. It's not conditioned on any material condition of the world perhaps require that kind of release to the unconditional happiness to be serene while walking across that kind of battlefield. And he continued walking across the battlefield and the king was moved by his serene presence and asked him, are you happy? And if so, how did you come to be? That's interesting. The monk who remains nameless to this day could have seen that carnage and said, this is disgusting, I'm going to walk the other way. He could have seen the king and told the king how awful he was. He could have heard the king speak and yelled at the king, look at what you've done. But instead he acted from kindness and compassion and he shared the Buddha's precious teachings, acting from love to heal hatred. So it so deeply moved King Ashoka that he became a very benevolent king. And he became a practitioner, a Buddhist practitioner. He became known as being a very benevolent, peaceful king, peaceful with the other kingdoms. And his son and daughter also became practitioners who carried the practice to Sri Lanka. And from there, the practice was carried to Thailand and Burma. And as many of you know, uh, several of the founding teachers at Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society really developed and spent years cultivating their practice in uh, Burma and Thailand. Again, you can see a direct link in some sense, uh, in some very direct way, to that monk acting from kindness to this very present moment right now. I'd like to think that there's a nameless monk among us right now who can act with that force of love in the world. Maybe it will be one of us acting with that kind of kindness. Maybe in many ways changing the world with kindness. So what does this trust or confidence in the heart mean for our practice? Perhaps it means opening to a greater capacity of our hearts than we ever thought possible 
beyond our imagination. This is possible. That we can indeed cultivate these beautiful, boundless qualities of loving kindness even as we face the most difficult uh, steps along the way. It supports this, this trust, supports steadiness, supports courage to ride through those most difficult times as a part of that purification process uh, that Spring talked about last night and allows us to bring acceptance even to those most difficult times when anger or fear or great pains or difficult stories are coming up. That We can acknowledge the suffering. We can say, I care about you, maybe to ourselves. And we can sit with it. We can open to the pain so it loses its power. So we don't, the stories of our lives, the difficult stories may still be there, but they lose their power as we go into the suffering. Let it be, and and we stop being prisoners to the stories. A beautiful part of the practice. The stories don't necessarily go away. They still may touch and impact our hearts, but we can be freed from the stories. So it really provides the courage to sit in the fire. And I was so inspired, really brought up faith for me hearing Spring's story of being on a five-month retreat and going with such great courage into the fire. So sometimes for me in practice, over the years doing metta practice right here, difficult stories would start to come up. I think this has probably come up for some of you where you, you feel and sense that story coming. You don't even know what it is. It's like, oh no, I don't want to go there. It's faith that allows us to stick with it, to open to it. It's interesting, all those stories, sometimes as big as they were, none of them were as big as I thought they were when that oh no arose. I was able to ride through them all. So we can really trust in this purification process. I love the analogy of, of the waves, being someone who likes to body surf, spending a lot of time in Hawaii in the waves. Sometimes a swell comes, just ride the swell, see the nice view from the top of the wave. Sometimes the wave crashes and we kind of get turned around by it, but we come back up again. Sometimes we catch the wave and have the thrill of riding the wave into the, into the beach. Sometimes a really big wave comes and we have the wisdom to know to dive beneath the wave. It's a great tool to use that my teacher, Sylvia Borstein, instructed me on is sometimes when something so big and powerful is coming up, it feels overwhelming, just dive under. Maybe just feel the emotion, no need to go into the story. Let it come up another time. So this trusting of the heart or faith is sata in Pali, uh, the language of the Buddha. Sharon Salzberg, in our beautiful book on faith, uh, calls faith to place the heart upon, the, the translation of sata, to place the heart upon. And Gil Franzdell, one of my teachers, calls it a confident trusting in the expression, trusting heart that supports clearness, brightness, clarity. And that clarity supports the dropping away of the hindrances of greed, aversion, of restlessness, sleepiness and doubt, particularly supporting the dropping away of doubt. Faith really helps to counter doubt. It's a very, this word faith in Buddhism is very different from the word faith as used by most religions. And I know the word faith can be a trigger 
for many people from different religious traditions. Merriam-Webster actually has a reference to faith being an unquestioning belief in God or religion. It's entirely different in the Buddhist practice. Faith means trusting in the heart. So I will use, in this talk, use the trusting in the heart and faith interchangeably. And just to emphasize this difference between other religious practices, Buddhist practice is all about realizing the truth directly. The Buddha said not to believe his words, but to believe one's own direct experience, to realize the truth directly. And the Buddha, when he was dying, the practitioners around, practitioners around him said, what will we do after you die? How will we continue our practice? And he offered these inspiring words. Therefore, be lamps unto yourselves. Be a refuge to yourselves. Hold yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for refuge in anyone besides yourself. So staying right here in this body awareness with this heart of loving kindness. The whole of the truth to be realized right here. That's not about following edicts. It's not about getting anywhere. It's not about achieving anything. With faith, we can let go. We can let go to trust the experience, trust the unfolding, not needing to interfere, not needing to push it this or that way. Using the tools of practice skillfully, as I'm hearing in interviews, uh, many of you are doing already. Choosing how to use the tools wisely for your practice. And no one can do that better than yourselves. It's like being in the waves. No one can stand on the shore and, and yell at you and tell you what to do. If you're in the waves, you have a sense of what's the right thing to do to protect yourself when you need to dive under the waves. So we open to vulnerability. I think this, and sometimes I reflect in my pra practice, it's opening to a deeper and deeper level of vulnerability and transparency that really serves to propel the practice. And it's faith that provides the foundation for that willingness to continue to open to vulnerability and transparency. So I'd like to just share a story too, of uh, just an everyday story of, of, from practice, um, how to use these tools of, um, how, I use, how I use these tools in my own practice. My partner is now my husband. I've been together 24 years, got married three years ago. I'm still getting used to using the word husband. But, uh, we walked down to a show in the, in the Mission, 16th and Mission. If anyone knows San Francisco, you know that's a lot of pain and suffering. Drug, drug addicts, alcoholics, uh, a lot of homeless people a lot of pain, and we walked down there, and I, I was just somewhat aware what was going on. I felt anger and aversion to what I was seeing, not the usual, the mode. We were walking to a theater, a live performance, a really special evening, and um, sat through the first half of the intermission, sat through the first half of the show, and I felt like I wasn't enjoying it. Okay, started to check in the body. What's going on? Feel the body, connect to the earth. Oh yeah, there's this story from kind of ancient history, childhood that came up earlier in the day that I had just kind of 
frozen up around, didn't want to see. And then I could just say to myself, I'm suffering. May I be free of suffering. Just that simple act that we can use again and again, the words that you work for you. Maybe I care for you. Beautiful words to use too, but to just that acknowledgement creates some space. So it created this space for me to open to being present again, to being connected to the heart, to being able to enjoy the rest of the show. I didn't need in that moment, it wasn't a wise thing to go into that story. It kind of unfolded over months of working into going into that, of practicing with it wisely. And then when I left the, the theater, it was very notable. I was aware of the suffering. I was aware of the heart being open. I didn't hand out money to everyone I saw, but there was a sense of compassion, a quivering of the heart, the quivering of the heart that is a natural response of the heart in response to suffering and the wish for it to end. And sometimes there's a call for action, sometimes not. So this faith provides both the element of inspiration, inspiration for opening the heart most deeply to this practice of loving kindness, really a simple practice of loving kindness, especially when we have this foundation of faith. So it provides inspiration and aspiration, the aspiration for realizing the heart, realizing the heart's release from all confusion, from the forces of the defilements. So faith is supported too by the appreciation for the beautiful qualities of our hearts. Uh, Temple mentioned this this morning in the guided meditation to take time to reflect from time to time to connect with the beautiful qualities of your own heart. It may be this simple kindness to friends and loved ones. It may be a sense of gratitude is one way to connect too, just gratitude for the things you have in life. Gratitude for the practice, gratitude for yourself, for making the time to be here maybe for the generous acts of being kind to people, maybe helping others, maybe helping others in your workplace, maybe just connecting with your sense of humor, all things that connect into the heart. Taking time to appreciate these things supports the deepening of faith and supports our practice of loving kindness. Sometimes my voice fades, so I want to make sure the volume still is okay. Shannon's okay? Okay. Um, so I wanted to mention to you the 11 benefits of the practice. Buddha spoke of 11 benefits of the practice. And I'm going to read the 11 uh, benefits. Um, I'm working from a little bit different interpretation uh, than what the sheet that you have uh, in front of you. But I prefer this one. So the 11 benefits of the practice. And I should note that the first three are not necessarily true in a retreat setting because they refer to sleep and dreams. And sleep patterns can be disturbed on retreats. I know myself, even on this retreat, my sleep patterns always change very, very radically when I'm on a retreat. And sometimes very disturbing dreams can, can come that seemingly are very inconsistent with the practice of loving kindness, but it's all part of the purification process. So 11 benefits of their practice. You will sleep easily. You will wake easily. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Devas and animals will love you. 
Devas will protect you. Poisons, weapons, and fires will not harm you. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. You will be reborn in happy realms. Pretty beautiful things to reflect upon. It'd be a nice thing to read these from time to time. Just keep reminding yourself of these. And they're true. They really are true. So I appreciate that this practice too supports the opening to all of the the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, the the abodes of our dormitories that uh, you're staying in, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And we'll be touching on all of these in the afternoons during the week. And the beautiful thing that when one of these is fully present, the others can naturally arise. So when equanimity and loving kindness are present, very naturally, if someone is happy, it's in our awareness, then we're gonna feel empathy. So someone like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who I think probably abides in some deep equanimity and loving kindness, natural response. If he's in a room of people and someone is telling a story of suffering, he feels compassion. And he can turn his head toward a laughing child and feel joy. Uh, This is uh, the true condition of the heart. And we open to these beautiful qualities. Ultimately, they're innate qualities of the heart. As these entanglements drop away, we open to these qualities of the heart. They're really innate to our own hearts. I love to reflect that nothing is missing in our own hearts. It's here. We just need to practice to cultivate these qualities so that we can allow these entanglements to drop away. Also, I want to mention the importance of... um, faith and opening to our own authenticity and especially important for me as a gay man because people in the LGBTQI community can feel invisible and sometimes feel like we're told to be invisible. So sometimes we don't open to things about ourselves and that's why vulnerability, allowing myself to be vulnerable and transparent is so important in my practice. But it's true for all of us. As we open to all of the stories of our lives, all of the emotions that may be held in the body, open with a sense of compassion and kindness. Then we come into wholeness, come into full authenticity. And some of the things that come up are pleasant. Some of the things that come up are unpleasant. But we open to our own uniqueness, wholeness, kind of a sense of aliveness and mystery that comes with that sense of wholeness that comes with practice. Expressed beautifully in this quote from Alice Walker, I am an expression of the divine, just like a peach is, just like a fish is. I have the right to be this way. I can't apologize for that, nor can I change it, nor do I want to. We will never have to be other than who we are in order to be successful. We realize that we are ourselves unlimited and our experience is valid. It is for the rest of the world to recognize this if they choose. So 
the unpleasant side. There's also an unpleasant side in coming into the wholeness of who we are. For me, this unpleasant side over the last five years has been opening to deep patterns of implicit bias, opening to acknowledge the privilege I've had as a white man. I, I always hid behind being a gay man because I'd suffered discrimination and hatred that I knew what it meant, and I didn't. And the taking an implicit bias test, Harvard implicit bias test, began to wake me up. And then the faith in being in this body with what is here has served that waking up process. To sit and say, yes, there are biases, and feel the sadness, the fear, the grief that underlies that. To have the courage to go into that, that's what the faith provides a foundation for the willingness to go into the most difficult aspects of the true authentic selves of who we are. It's really become an important practice for um, my partner and I together uh, to talk about this. And we'll, we spent 45 minutes in the car driving to a friend's house earlier in the week, and we spent that whole 45 minutes just talking on this subject. Um, it's interesting we didn't talk about it for so long, very much, because my partner is Latino, is an immigrant. He didn't have documents, legal documents, until he was 19. And uh, we're really both opening up to stories of our lives and very different perspectives sometimes, sometimes similarities in perspectives. But it's allowing that, that vulnerability and transparency that is serving the release of the heart, serving the interest of freedom, the aspiration, the deepest aspiration. So faith also is a great source of stoking the fire for our efforts, maybe our engagement in the world and working to relieve suffering at a very direct level, maybe for our engagement on environmental issues, even when the odds seem so low maybe in our actions and working for social justice, even in difficult times. Faith in believing that our actions and our words are right when they come from a place of loving kindness, from a place of compassion. When we act and speak from that place of kindness and compassion rather than hatred with the intention to heal, to heal the hatred that's in the underlying the dysfunctions. There's such a power in speaking from a place of peace and serenity, speaking from poise. Can reflect on people like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, some of those figures who had that great sense of peace and poise that just command attention, speak with great power. And amazing to me that someone like uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, having lost his own country as a leader of his own country, has been this powerful figure, as a spiritual leader, but as a leader for the whole world in speaking about the need for kindness and compassion, the need to protect our precious earth. In the words of Martin Luther King, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Really inspires me in this time.
So some tools for strengthening faith. Just taking, appreciating that we're taking refuge in Sangha, that we're supporting each other can be a source of faith, source of support. I've really felt it in the group interviews that I've led, the way you can just feel in the room the kindness and compassion for one another. I actually thought two people in one interview room must be longtime friends because I felt such an energetic uh, connection. So we may all start feeling like family here on this retreat as the loving kindness really opens. Maybe it's already happening in the the stillness that's felt in the room. The traditional support of faith is a triple gem, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and the, the inspiration of the Buddha as a human being who fully realized the truth and shared his precious teachings, and that the teachings have been carried forward for almost 2,600 years. Links us directly to the moment of the Buddha's awakening. We're practicing with the teachings that he offered. And the Dharma, taking refuge in the Dharma, the truth of the way things are, we can just let go to the unfolding process. With this practice of loving kindness, we can trust the Dharma. We can kind of stay out of the way of of the Dharma to let it unfold in its own way. And we can take refuge in the Sangha of uh, the beings who realized freedom and liberation, who who carried forward the teachings over this time period. Reflecting on our own beautiful qualities, as I mentioned earlier. Then we're taking, uh, making connection with people who inspire us, who inspire our practice, who inspire faith. So I think particularly it could be a teacher, could be a powerful worldwide spiritual leader. For me, my grandparents have been powerful figures that support faith. Um, and I really drew upon their faith and when I was living through that AIDS crisis period. Drew upon their faith. I remember drawing upon their faith very powerfully on that first Metta retreat where so much stuff was coming up. So my grandparents lived to be 94 and 96 years old. They outlived all of their friends. Um, they outlived their only daughter, my mother. And it was amazing to be with them through that the death of my mother and see that their fundamental peace and happiness was not disturbed. They grieved, but the peace was still there. I think I remember now that they did talk about trusting in their own religious beliefs. I think they said trusting in God and the order of things. Is this trust in the order of things, the order of things in the Dharma? So someone like this may really deeply inspire us in our lives and that that can can help us connect with faith and support us through the difficult times. So just to begin to end, this this trust in in the heart, the faith can really inspire our practice of loving kindness, can help support us when we need to bring compassion for ourselves to say, I feel the suffering, may I be free of suffering, to say, I care. And to open to a deeper capacity of the heart than we may have ever thought possible. To allow our hearts to be naturally open 
to the suffering of others, so that quivering in the heart just becomes a natural response to suffering. To allow the present moment to be accepted just as it is, no matter what it is, even if a powerful action must be taken after that. So to loop back to the hospice volunteer work I mentioned at the beginning, it's, you know, it's interesting, I always feel like I got so much back, I think 17 years of hospice volunteer work, I always felt like I got so much more back than I ever gave, that those residents in hospice were teachers. And uh, I was telling Temple today, I actually don't think I actually felt grief on leaving the house, on leaving the house at the end of the shift ever. Usually I felt a sense of peace. So the great gift to me to have that practice. And sometimes, quite a few times, people have said to me, oh, you hospice volunteers must be saints. Maybe some of you are working in hospice and have experienced that. You hospice volunteers must be saints. And I love to say to them, well, the truth is we're all saints. We're all saints. We're all Buddhas. Our hearts are naturally pure, vast, limitless. There's nothing missing. There's nothing more that's needed. This is true for every being. So as we practice, we... I've heard this from some folks in interviews. There's kind of a coming into aliveness and vibrancy that can come up from time to time, especially in seeing nature, seeing the wildlife, kind of connecting with the deer and the turkey, the birds, maybe the sky and the trees. We can offer to meta, to all of that, to all of those things, or to the whole of it. Everything in the service of meta for this retreat. I'd like to read a poem on that vibrancy and vitality that arises with our practice of loving-kindness. It's a poem from Walt Whitman. Why, who makes much of a miracle, as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. Whether I walk the streets of Manhattan or dart my sight over the roofs of houses toward the sky or wade with naked feet along the beach just in the edge of the water, or stand under trees in the woods, or talk by day with anyone I love, or sleep in the bed at night with anyone I love, or sit at table at dinner with the rest, or look at strangers opposite me riding in the car, or watch honeybees busy around the hive of a summer forenoon, or animals feeding in the fields, or birds, or the wonderfulness of insects in the air, or the wonderfulness of the sundown, or stars shining so quiet and bright, or the exquisite, delicate, thin curve of the new moon in spring. These, with the rest, one and all, are to me miracles, the whole referring yet each distinct and in its place. To me, every hour of the light and dark is a miracle. Every cubic inch of space is a miracle. Every square yard of the surface of the earth is spread with the same. Every foot of the interior swarms with the same. To me, the sea is a continual miracle, the fishes that swim, the rocks, the motions of the waves. The ships with the men in them, 
What stranger miracles are there? Let's sit for just a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.